dragons and mermaids and alligators? Oh my, it's Puppets A Glogo, brought to you by Stone Lion Puppet Theater and KKFI, right in front of the National World War I Museum. September 25th and 26th, a drive through art experience for the entire family. Giant illuminated puppets, aerialists, and glow performers, a free event for everyone. 7.30 p.m. to 10 p.m. nightly on September 25th and 26th. Tune your dial to KKFI for the soundtrack and stay in your car to see all the glowing art. Learn more at stonelionpuppets.org. Greetings. This is Understanding Israel-Palestine Beyond the Walls on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. The program is a project of Citizens for Justice in the Middle East. Composed of residents in the greater Kansas City area, CJME has for two decades sponsored honest discussions in pursuit of peace and justice in Israel-Palestine while working to educate the public about the need for a responsible and even-handed U.S. policy in the Middle East. Every week on Friday at 9.30 a.m., this show introduces our audience to scholars, journalists, policy analysts, and activists who can help us better understand the realities that now prevail in Israel-Palestine. I am Jeremy Rothkuschel, the producer of this week's show, with additional contributions from Margot Patterson and Jamie Jackson. On this show, I speak with Grant Smith, the research director of the Institute for Research, Middle Eastern Policy, IRMEP, in Washington, D.C. since 2003, and the author of two unofficial histories of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, APAC, about the long-term and ongoing history of industrial-scale Israeli espionage and influence operations inside the United States. But first, the headline news. In July, Israel approved the transfer of 500 Israeli prisoners to house arrest to deter the spread of the coronavirus. But no similar moves to check the spread of the disease have been made with regards to Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. UN human rights officials have called the disparate treatment of Israeli and Palestinian prisoners discriminatory and a violation of international law. Israel is holding some 4,500 Palestinians in prison, many of them not charged with any crime and held under administrative detention. Overcrowded, unsanitary conditions are rife. As of late June, over 150 Palestinian children were confined in Israeli prisons, with all family visits canceled because of the pandemic. In August, Israel reported the first diagnosed child COVID case, though for months, Defense of Children International, Palestine, and the UN have called for Israel to release all minors held in detention. Middle East Monitor reports that the coronavirus pandemic is now sweeping the besieged Gaza Strip after several COVID-19 cases were discovered outside the designated quarantine areas, a total lockdown was imposed by the Gaza authorities on August 24th. Israeli house demolitions of Palestinian homes have risen sharply during the pandemic. The UN Office for the Coordination for Humanitarian Affairs reported that from March to August, 389 Palestinian structures were raised and 442 people were made homeless. In the month of August, 205 people lost their homes, the highest number of people displaced since January 2017. The UN warned that the coronavirus has worsened the economic situation in the Palestinian territories, with donor support expected to drop to its lowest level in more than a decade. As of September 20th, 
the death toll from COVID-19 in Gaza and the West Bank had reached 300, and the total number of infections was over 45,000. The online journal Common Dreams has reported that the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, voted down a proposed basic law that would have required democratic principles, cultural pluralism, and complete equality for all Israelis, including Palestinian Israelis who constitute 21% of the population. Basic laws are Israel's constitutional equivalent. In 2018, the basic law known as the nation-state law was passed. It discriminates against Israel's non-Jewish citizens and undermines Israel's claim to be a democratic state. Over 2,000 people have written the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, to complain about the deletion of the word Palestine from a CBC program and the subsequent decision of the CBC to apologize for using the word. The reference to Palestine occurred during an interview with guest Joe Sacco, the creator of a graphic novel called Palestine. In introducing Sacco on The Current, host Duncan McHugh referenced Sacco's work in Bosnia, Iraq, and Palestine. The last reference was scrubbed from an airing of the show in Western Canada, and the revised transcript mentions only Bosnia and Iraq. The following day, CBC apologized for using a word that it said was outside its language standards. This is Jeremy Roth Kuschel with Understanding Israel-Palestine Beyond the Walls. I'm joined by Grant Smith. Grant Smith has been the research director of the Institute for Research, Middle Eastern Policy, IRMEP, in Washington, D.C. since 2003. He is the author of two unofficial histories of APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, America's Defense Line, the Justice Department's battle to register the Israel lobby as agents of a foreign government, and foreign agents, APAC, from the 1963 Fulbright hearings to the 2005 espionage scandal, as well as the books Divert and Spy Trade about Israeli espionage inside the United States. Jeff Stein of the Washington Post designated Smith a, quote, Washington, D.C. author who has made a career out of writing critical books on Israeli spying and lobbying, unquote. Thank you so much for joining us today, Grant Smith. Hey, it's great to be on. Thank you, Jeremy. Would you take us back to maybe more of the origins of the uh, modern Israel lobby in the United States of America? Sure. And uh, I just want to say that one of the uh, books you referenced really traces the rise of um, Isaiah Kennan, who was the founder of APAC. And so he, along with some other key figures I hope we discuss, such as Abraham Feinberg, were really instrumental in setting up the lobby as we know it today. On the part of Kennan, he started off as uh, a newspaper man, very interested in um, Zionist politics. And then uh, when Israel was coming into being, he was actually an employee of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and ran an operation called the Israel Office of Information, in which they were trying to pressure Congress and funnel lots of uh, news to newspapers and outlets about the importance of supporting Israel. And he finally left that organization for the American Zionist Council, the APAC prototype, 
and essentially did the same thing. And this really sets up the battle that's been uh, that that went on through the fifties and sixties, where the Justice Department told him he had to register as a foreign agent under the nineteen thirty eight Foreign Agents Registration Act, and he said no. And then uh, when he was kind of caught out lobbying by uh, the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee and a Justice Department investigation, they reconstituted the AZC as APAC to avoid registering. Will you explain to our listeners the birth of the modern political lobbying organization in relationship to the Israel lobby in terms of this relationship of Abraham Feinberg and Harry Truman. Sure. That's an extremely important relationship. So Abraham Feinberg, you know, was born in 1908 and he was instrumental in organizing Harry S. Truman's so-called Whistletop fundraising tour that really saved his 1948 uh, presidential election campaign from what people were terming at the time it was almost certainly going to be a disaster and so Feinberg had an extremely close relationship uh, with Harry Truman he was the chairman of the Democratic Party committee in New York City and Truman quoted to his Truman Library, he said, I remember Abe, he certainly did come through. <laughs> and he really, he really did. He really helps Truman out a lot. And he later, you know, he later helped out other Democrats as well, right up to LBJ uh, in terms of raising funds. But he also had this other side. And that other side was his instrumental role as a... Um, person who was helping a vast smuggling network called the Haganah Smuggling Network in the U.S., uh, which was diverting surplus World War II material of war to Palestine for the upcoming War of Independence. And so he was constantly coming up on the radar as being involved uh, first in Americans for Haganah, which became uh, Israel speaks. He was ordered like Kennan to begin registering as a foreign agent in the 1950s and very instrumental behind the scenes in meeting when uh, Dave and Big Gorian was just the head of the Jewish agency visiting the U.S. He was part of this group of rich Zionist industry leaders who met with Ben Gurion and promised to help set up the support network in the U.S. He was one of those guys. So he had this other side where he was really working Truman and other political figures on the basis of his Democratic Party politics to get this unconditional aid for Israel going. And he really leveraged the fact that he had saved Truman and that he was a bigwig in the Democratic Party to get all sorts of favorable deals. And especially when he was meeting with Israeli intelligence officials and meeting with Americans who were smuggling weapons, uh, he was able to get the Justice Department uh, and other uh, investigations of the Haganah smuggling network to quash those 
investigations in the cradle so that only a handful of some of the smugglers who were violating the Neutrality Act and Arms Export Control Act were actually uh, prosecuted, like uh, Hank Greenspun, a big uh, figure out uh, in Las Vegas, like Al Schwimmer, who became the head of Israel Aircraft Industries, later Israel Aerospace Industries, Charles Winters, who uh, helped get some uh, some bombers shipped to Israel. He was very instrumental in helping get minimal prosecutions and get all sorts of uh, leniency for when they were caught, which wasn't very often, but when they were caught, it stood a chance to give Israel a major black eye and, and get some accountability out of the uh, network. If they weren't able to quash the investigations, they were later able to, and their fellow travelers, uh, get some presidential pardons of the people who were caught. Moving back to the 40s through the 60s and this question of Truman through Kennedy, it's interesting. In the beginning of uh, Israel Shahak, the controversial but renowned uh, Israeli chemist and dissident, wrote a book titled "The a Jewish History, Jewish Religion, The Way to 3,000 Years. And in the preface, Gore Vidal relates a, a story that he had heard directly from John F. Kennedy about a suitcase of cash that was delivered to Truman during these whistle stop tours and that it was basically explicitly put to Kennedy behind the scenes when Feinberg approached him. And this is also related in the Samson option, Seymour Hersh's book, right. that Feinberg said that there was a... A, 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 an agreement or a, an understanding. Meanwhile, Kennedy had related to others that he felt deeply insulted on behalf of the United States that there was basically a quid pro quo offered to him in relationship to campaign financing that we want to, quote, uh, control your Middle East policy. And thus, after that, Kennedy came into office and along with his brother, Robert Kennedy, John Kennedy, on one hand, wanted to reform uh, campaign finance. And then Robert Kennedy looked to be tasked to uh, try to register the uh, Israel lobby as foreign agents. Would you uh, speak to what happened there? Sure. I, I just want to uh, say that the full quote from this, uh, it was that, quote, sometime in the late 40s, that world-class gossip and occasional historian John F. Kennedy told me how in 1948, Harry S. Truman had been pretty much abandoned by everyone when he came to run for president. Then an American Zionist brought him $2 million in cash in a suitcase aboard his whistle-stop campaign train. And that's why a recognition of Israel was rushed through so fast, unquote. And it's a classic quote, and lots of people have, have mentioned that. But just bumping it up to that hotel meeting room, Kennedy... He got the backing of major pro-Israel business people and whatnot. And, and they did basically tell him, we want to run your Middle East policy. And he was unaware that that was the quid pro quo. And he did three things that really uh, did not go down well with uh, these financial backers. They felt abandoned and that he was not holding up his end of the bargain. One of them was... Uh, having some diplomacy pushing for the return of some Palestinian refugees to their homes and properties in what was now Israel by the early 60s. He also was uh, cracking down uh, behind the scenes 
on the fact that uh, the American Zionist Council was not registering as a foreign agent, despite an abundance of information that they were absolutely uh, taking money uh, to things like Kennan's Near East reports, which was kind of laundering money from the Jewish agency to him to keep his operations going, all sorts of coordination, uh, just every indication that they were foreign agents but not registering. And they would push back and say, well, you know, Pharaoh was designed to go after, you know, Nazis and communists, not, not our good friends Israel. And so they were pushing back, uh, saying, no, this, this law doesn't really apply to us. And his third red line was really um, threatening to withhold conventional military aid if Israel didn't shut down its Timona nuclear weapons facility. And all three of those things were just absolute uh, red lines for the Israel lobby and Israel. And it was extremely tense going. Um, there's a whole section of our IsraelLobbyArchive.org devoted to the behind-the-scenes fight where they ordered AZC to register as a foreign agent. But then after Kennedy was gone, um, the whole thing kind of unwound. And although the AZC did submit uh, a list of all the money it was sending out to form think tanks, and funneling to the New York Times radio station and just this vast influence operation. Uh, that was supposed to be public, and yet the Justice Department kept it under wraps until we got it via FOIA in 2008. So the Pharaoh battle with APAC's predecessor is why APAC exists in its present form. APAC split off from being an unincorporated lobbying division of the American Zionist Council six weeks after the order by the Justice Department, and it was back up and running full-fledged by the end of the decade. And so the reason APAC exists is that it had to reconstitute itself in order to claim that it didn't have to register as a foreign agent. But then it went on to be involved in three quasi-espionage scandals that proved that it still had this intelligence and covert operations capability and probably should have been registering. So it's a fascinating story. And if you look up American Zionist Council, you know, registration battle, you can see all of the documents behind those two books that you mentioned. And the resources that you have at Israel Lobby Dot org include everything from what you mentioned about the behind-the-scenes nuclear negotiations to a whole uh, series of documents about Abraham Feinberg. And it's interesting to note, too, that in, you know, it talked about how usually FARA would be used to uh, keep an eye on communists and Nazis. And, right. and meanwhile, one of Feinberg's close associates, you know, uh, David Wall. David Wall, right. <laughs> was, was, was a known... Uh, Soviet spy, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Codename Pink, you say, from the 1930s. Right. And, uh, and so that's just a note. And then sort of putting a, a closing on this earlier period, mm -hmm. uh, I just would want to note that, that uh, there is a long term, it looks to be an archetype or a architecture of the Israel lobby, at that point even the proto-Israel lobby, in terms of the, a carrot and the stick. And so at the same time that Abraham Feinberg is approaching Truman with uh, resources to fund his uh, dilapidated campaign, 
the Stern gang, uh, Lehi, one of the most extremists of the Zionist militant groups who had worked to make an alliance with the Nazi Germany and then eventually turned to uh, the Soviets, um, right. but were also sending mail bombs to uh, leadership in the UK. But it also had sent, uh, apparently, and this is documented in Truman da- Truman's daughter's Margaret's book that they had, that the Stern gang had sent letter bombs to the White House in right. 1947. And so I think that this architecture of the carrot and the stick in terms of this long term industrial scale espionage uh, should be should be noted. But I, uh, now in moving into this more middle period of yeah. the uh, of the Israel lobby and industrial scale Israeli espionage, I think the nuclear component that you mentioned is really crucial here. It was obviously of much importance to this in intensity of tension between the Kennedy administration and, and uh, Ben-Gurion's administration uh, in the early 60s. And then it did not resolve. Well, in some cases it was resolved in certain ways, but uh, they it was only escalated in terms of the importance of the Israeli desire to uh, attain nuclear materials and to at- attain them by covert means from the United States uh, in terms of building up their their uh, nuclear weapons at their Demona plant. And so in bringing us from maybe the 60s into the 80s, could you yeah. talk about this question of uh, the transfer of material, nuclear material, in relationship yeah. to LACOM, which is the Israeli basically industrial espionage organization and was mm-hmm. crucial at the core of, of nuclear espionage, including into the more modern era where someone who's known as a uh, film producer of such <laughs> films as JFK yeah, yeah. by Oliver yeah. Stone, Arnon Milchan is a right. known agent of, uh, of uh, is- Israeli nuclear espionage. Right. Yeah. Well, that's um, that's very interesting ground. And just to mention that when Ben Gurion in 1958 started uh, looking to um, fund a nuclear weapons program, he turns once again to Abe Feinberg as somebody he knew could get it done because he had already done all of the conventional weapons smuggling and organization that way. So he was also involved, and they formed some front organizations, such as the Wiseman Institute for Science, which became a partner and was very active in trying to get the uh, Atoms for Peace program so that they could have a U.S.-funded nuclear research facility. The LACOM was a scientific division for looking for mainly nuclear weapons related material and information run out of consulates and um, the embassy in the U.S. And there's a uh, there was a very conscious effort to get the most precious material on Earth that could only be produced in massive national laboratories. um, And that was highly enriched uranium. And so just like the uh, Haganah uh, outfit had set up front organizations through the Sonnenborn Institute, like Materials and Manpower for Palestine. Um, they There was a front organization uh, set up uh, outside of Pittsburgh at Apollo, Pennsylvania, 
by a brilliant nuclear scientist named Zalman Shapiro, who had solved some key problems in naval nuclear reactors and then launched his own uh, commercial facility as a contractor for the Navy to process highly enriched uranium into naval fuel and other applications. Almost uh, immediately, by the mid-1960s, it was noted that his plant was losing more highly rich uranium than any other facility in the U.S., and it still has that record. And so an investigation was launched by the FBI, and they noted that top Israeli LACOM officials and top Israeli spies like Rafi Eitan uh, had visited the plant, that uh, Shapiro was heavily involved in meeting with these people on a constant basis. He was photographed in surveillance photos, meeting in the airport with uh, Israeli spies. And an effort was made to determine if some of this lost material had found its way into Dimona. And an Israeli, the Tel Aviv station chief, uh, the Israel Tel Aviv station chief for the CIA, John Haddon, uh, did a covert mission and picked up some samples outside of Demona that indicated this highly enriched uranium for naval f- uh, fuel, which was distinct and rare and not not available in many places. Hanford transferred much of it right to Apollo, uh, to Numex to process, picked up traces of that, came to the conclusion that the Israelis uh, had obtained a, a large quantity of that in order to have nuclear Weapons available, uh, you know, by the late 1960s, simple sort of gun type, uh, highly enriched uranium uh, atomic bomb. So the fallout from that particular espionage is still ongoing. The site in Apollo, Pennsylvania, where they ran Numec was a steel plant. It was not it was a shoddily run organization, underfunded. Many people uh, were hurt by pollution. It's still the site of a half-billion-dollar cleanup by the U.S. Corps of Engineers. Everyone has generally not had any consequences except for the residents around the plants. But nuclear espionage has been ongoing. And you mentioned uh, Arnon Milchan, the famous uh, Hollywood producer. He was recruited by very early uh, LeCombe, and he participated in sourcing material as well and one incident that we've been particularly active on because nobody actually went after the documents was to find out more about the diversion of 810 Krytrons um, which can be used as nuclear triggers in the highly sequenced timing of the initial detonations that then detonate uh, nuclear weapons well there was a smuggling operation called Project Pinto which was set up to smuggle some of these export-controlled triggers out of the U.S. in a series of shipments to the Israeli Ministry of Defense. Uh, What we found out when we got the FBI documents and some other agencies released documents was that none other than Benjamin Netanyahu was in this smuggling ring meeting with the smugglers, such as Richard Kelly Smith, and uh, worked at Heli Trading at a time when everyone else said he was working at a furniture, f- furniture factory. The problem with this whole thing is they rounded up a lower-level operative, Richard Kelly Smith. These upper-level operatives, whether it's from Milchan or Netanyahu, one of them became the prime minister a little right. bit later, and the other produced the movie on the assassination of an American president <laughs> right. the next decade. 
Well, thank you so much. I've been speaking with Grant F. Smith, who's been the research director of the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy, IRMEP, in Washington, D.C. since 2003, and a prolific author of many crucial books. Grant, will you give our audience a, a sense of where they can go to find more information about your work if they're interested in doing so? Sure, Jeremy, and uh, thanks Thanks for having me on. Um, people can go to the to israellobby.org, which is an, an archival website, and pretty much everything that we collect, which is mainly through the Freedom of Information Act, can be found there. And then any articles we write is, is linked from there as well. People can go to irmep.org, which lists our conferences, recent reports. It's got the Twitter feed and online events. We're running a new one. Uh, called Extra, which is talking about all sorts of topics with all sorts of ex, uh, experts. So check out irmep.org as well. Thank you so much again, Grant Smith. Thanks, Jeremy. You've been listening to Understanding Israel-Palestine. I am Jeremy roth Gushel. Citizens for Justice in the Middle East meets the first Monday of the month and is open to all. For more information about its meetings, to find a link to this show, or to discover resources on these topics, you can go to cjme.org. You can also listen to the show on KKFI's website, kkfi.org. And it airs every Friday morning at 9.30, right here on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. We hope you will join us then. Ready for some spine tingling? How about a little comedy? Or maybe a gripping drama from the dawn of the Pendergast era? We've got that. Kansas City Actors Radio Theater, coming soon to KKFI. Fridays at noon, every week starting October 2nd. Treat yourself to some of Kansas City's best-known actors performing your radio favorites. Agatha Christie, the Bickersons, and the all-new Kansas City 1924. Fridays at noon starts October 2nd. Dragons and mermaids and alligators? Oh my. It's Puppets A Glogo, brought to you by Stone Lion Puppet Theater and KKFI, right in front of the National World War I Museum. September 25th and 26th, a drive through art experience for the entire family. Giant illuminated puppets, aerialists, and glow performers, a free event for everyone. 7.30 p.m. to 10 p.m. nightly on September 25th and 26th. Tune your dial to KKFI for the soundtrack and stay in your car to see all the glowing art. Learn more at stonelionpuppets.org. Hello, this is Larry Cruz, and you're listening.